If you would, turn to Jude, just chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 today. Uh, we, we were excited. We were going to announce our first annual uh, Easter egg hunt. Uh, uh, bring your own basket. It was fabulous. We're really looking forward to it. Unfortunately, we had some technical difficulties, and it's been canceled. So uh, if you were planning on coming, sorry, that, that won't happen. So I hope Tom Flynn did see that. I think he did. So, all right. Well, <laughs> that had nothing to do with Jude. So let's do a little bit of review. Who's our author? He tells us. And who is this Jude? According to... New, yes, it's the, the brother of James. It's the brother of Jesus. Uh, we talked about this. He's intimately involved in the inner workings of the early church. He pins this letter, and he's going to, three and four today are going to tell us why he's pinned this letter. We laid out a little bit with the structure. This is just a review. It's not in your notes today, but it's carefully constructed. Uh, this epistle, it resembles a first century letter, except there's one glaring omission, and that is the thanksgiving. Uh, and we'll see that in verse three today. While it, we're going to get to the negative part, that's the false teachers. It's a, like, whoa, it's, it's a heavy book. It reminds you of Second Peter, and it should. They're very similar. It's still a positive letter. It in, begins and ends on a positive note, and he loves triplets. So watch for those as we move along. Uh, it's masterfully done. Well, let's look at verse 3. He says, dear friends, and he's going to use that phrase two more times in the letter. Although I've been eager to write to you about our common salvation, I now feel compelled instead to write to encourage you to contend earnestly for the faith. He had set out to write a letter to talk about the salvation they have in Christ, uh, the unity around the gospel, and he's changed course because of this dire situation that's at hand. And he tells us what he's doing. We'll get to that in a minute. But he says, this faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men have secretly slipped in among you. Here's the reason. Men long ago marked out for the condemnation. I'm about to describe ungodly men who have turned the grace of our God into a license for evil and who deny our master and Lord Jesus Christ. There at the opening in your notes under the introduction, I mentioned this fact that he's omitted this thanksgiving and he jumps right into the, the reason for why he's writing. Uh, there's a couple ways that that could be rendered, but, but I, I think the, the Net Bible has done a nice job of conveying that he's intending to write this epistle. He sets it aside in order to write this one. Some have argued that, no, he wrote a letter and now he's writing another letter or he never intended to write, there's debate. But I think that's what's going on here is that he sees the urgency of it. Yeah, the common salvation, it's not common in the sense that it's, it's benign or, uh, you, you know, uh, it, it's, it's a shared gospel, but far more significant is, is what's plaguing the church. And, and some have argued that that's why this letter is a little bit lighter. As the church develops in the first century, false teachers are going to start percolating all over the place. We see that in 2 Timothy. We've seen that in 2 Peter. Remember 1 Peter on our study, the false teachers were on the outside. In 2 Peter, I argue they're standing at the door knocking. In Jude, they're in the camp. 
So there's this progression as we've moved. Uh, some would flip Second Peter and Jude. I, I don't see that. There's several questions we need to ask in these two verses. Who is, or first, what is this faith? Who must battle or, uh, for this faith? And then why is there this battle for the faith? So let's first look at what is faith. What's, what's he talking about when he says in verse 3, I want you to contend earnestly. And that's a loaded term. It's used for military. It's used for athletes. Uh, Paul uses the term uh, elsewhere uh, in, in the New Testament, uh, talking about as a, an athlete, we contend for the faith. But, but what is the faith that he's talking about? Usually when we see Paul referring to faith, what's he referring to? What's Paul usually referring to when he says faith? Belief, right? Belief in the gospel. I, I see this as much larger than that. I even quote one scholar, David Allen, who states the substance of apostolic faith, this body of doctrine of what Jude is talking about. It's not just that Jesus died, he came to earth, he died, and he rose again. That's part of it. But this faith is much larger. It's complete and must govern the meaning of the terms in which doctrine are defined and discussed. Uh, unfortunately, doctrine's become a four-letter word in many circles today. Uh, it can be divisive. That's been a part of the problem. The flip side is without doctrine, you, you, you know, you're a bunch of pansies of the wind uh, with no root, no, no basis. And doctrine is vital to the New Testament writers. They talk about it frequently. And, and so even in verse, look at verse 17. This is another basis that it's, it's not just the gospel he's talking about. You, dear friends, recall the predictions foretold by the apostles. So in other words, there's this body of apostolic teaching that's been passed down to them. And he says, you need to guard this. You need to contend, as he says, earnestly for the faith. I mentioned in your notes, orthodoxy is vital to the church. It, it, it's crucial. And in fact, as I wrote, the next sentence there is that one's morals will reflect one's doctrine. Your morals will be no higher than your doctrine, your belief system. And you may not have a formal doctrinal statement, but everyone lives one. <laughs> I've told you about the, I used to teach a course for IWU on Christian ethics and philosophy. You can imagine how exciting that was for everybody, including yours truly. Oh, it was awful. Um, but it was a required course, and you'd have these people write their personal statement of ethics. And these were uh, seniors, uh, adult learners who were involved in business. And I had one lady said, well, I take a little bit of Christianity, I take a little bit of Satanism, I take a little bit of this, and this is my belief system. Uh, <clears throat> she has a doctrinal statement. The bottom line is egoism. She's the determiner of truth. But nonetheless, she has a doctrinal statement. All of them had a doctrinal statement. Uh, it was crazy, you know. Usually the line was, well, I believe everything the Bible, you know, they give you that line, but I'll do anything for my kids or I'll do anything for my family. Uh, you go, wait a minute. Uh, this isn't coinciding. Orthodoxy is vital to the church. <clears throat> and as he's stating, we must hold fast to this. So what is faith? 
I think it's a body of doctrine, apostolic teaching that's been passed down to the church. It's not just the gospel. It's broader than that. And as I said, verse 17 seems to support that. Questions on this? This teaching that's been passed down is in grave danger. I would say that's true even today. You know, and, and so who is it that must battle for this faith is the next question. Who's responsible for securing this? And I would argue all believers, all believers. Notice he says, first of all, he addressed them as dear friends. So they are beloved. It's a term used frequently in the New Testament of those who are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. He uses it in verse 17. He uses it again in verse 20. They are followers of him. Secondly, they are recipients of apostolic teaching. So there is a, um, most of these, are, well, they are. They're second generation, maybe maybe first generation, but Christians. But they've, they've been blessed to have the apostolic teaching delivered to them. Notice he says you've been entrusted with this tradition. Um, unfortunately, we think of filler on the roof, right? Tradition, tradition. That's a little passe. Uh, I mean, I've mentioned here practices and beliefs that are outdated, irrelevant, and narrow-minded. Uh, especially in our day and age when you mention tradition, uh, they think usually of a, an Amish group over here, you know, that's uh, nice to view, but wouldn't want to embrace their lifestyle kind of a thing. Well, Scripture has a whole different view of tradition. <laughs> when, it, when it talks of tradition, I, I mentioned there in your notes, we're, t- we're dealing with things that are sound, they're practical, and they're invaluable. Paul, remember telling Timothy, hold fast to the traditions that you've been given. Do, do not waver. Big in his commentary states, Jude's language about faith is highly dogmatic highly orthodox and highly zealous. Men who use such phrases believe passionately in a creed. And that, that's the idea here. He goes, listen, you've been entrusted this. And notice the phrase, it's, it's once for all, which says what? When you use the phrase once for all, what's, he, what's, what's that imply? It's done, Right? We're not, we're not adding to this. This isn't a, a negotiation. <laughs> you can't bring your cultural uh, mores into the, into the mix. You, 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 you can't uh, bring a committee together to discuss this. This is what's been passed down, and this is what you are to be entrusted to. And again, in a postmodern world or post-postmodern world we live in, that's like fingernails across the blackboard, isn't it? Um, when I first started teaching 18 to 22-year-olds, uh, within seven years, I, I realized, started to learn, you got to change your tactics, Hoffadits, because they're not listening if you just come right out and say, this is what the Lord says. Uh, you can bring a horse to the trailer, but you might need to run it around the trailer a few times, right? And so it's getting them to think, to, to, to engage the ideas, and then say, thus saith the Lord, right? But it, it, it's a process. Um, dogmatism, unfortunately, doesn't bow well. And it didn't bow well in Jude's day. That's why these false teachers have had made, they've made such inroads. You really you expect us to do all of that? We are, we are free in Christ. That's the mantra that the, the, the false teachers are using. Uh, 
And so to the believers, you've been given tradition and you need to earnestly hold fast. Again, a military term or an athletic term, it's clear. And that comes to the last part that they are to be the contenders. Look at example. Turn to 1 Corinthians. Look at 1 Corinthians 9. Give you an example of this. And I know I'm preaching to the choir. You guys are here this morning studying the word. Many of you are involved in ministry. Keep it up. But 1 Corinthians 9.25, Paul uses this very word contend. He says, each competitor must exercise, contend, self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown for an imperishable one. So there it is. This isn't, oh, I hope we can get this right. No, we need to be students of the word. We need to be in studying. We're going to talk about that a little more here. I can take you to Tubingen where I studied for a while. German students working on their master's. They know, they know where to put the valve markings in the Hebrew. And I, I know I got some uh, experts in Hebrew in the room, but most seminary men and women couldn't do that in the States. There's no way. Uh, yet these are, they're putting the valve markings in. They know the text inside and out, and most of them are not believers. <laughs> they're in it because they just love to study or they love the language or whatever. And so when I had my guys and pre-seminary guys studying Greek, I said, listen, there's no excuse for laziness. We, if anyone, need to be students of the Word, digging in. And I would use that as an example to say, we need to be earnestly contending for the faith, studying it, knowing it. Why? Jude tells us there's false teachers. This is no surprise, or should come to no surprise to all of us, Jesus warned of it, it's red letters, right? And other New Testament writers warned that there's going to be false teachers. And notice how Jude describes them. Number one, he says they are subtle. (laughs) Subtle. If they're blatant, no one's going to receive them, right? He even says... For certain men have secretly slipped. Some scholars think those are disparaging words. These particular men have come into the camp is the idea. Uh, And ironically, that's Satan tactics all the way back into Genesis 3, isn't it? it? It's subtle. There's a little bit of truth and a little bit of heresy that come into play. And it's so enticing. I wrote down in my notes... Cultural norms is often the vehicle used, isn't it? Well, this is what everyone else believes. This is where we are today. And Satan just knows how to to navigate our culture and pollute the truth. And the problem is if we don't know the real thing, we'll never spot a counterfeit. I uh, I have a friend who deals with antiquities in the old city of Jerusalem, and he told me that He'd had a fellow come by and try to sell him a pot from the time of David. <clears throat> and he said, I took the pot, I looked at it, and I threw it to the ground and smashed it. And said, get out of my store. I said, how'd you know it was a fake? He said, well, I was pretty certain it was a fake. <laughs> I said, good. I said, how, you know, and he explains, these are the things I look for. This is what I know. But I'm like, oh, my word. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. So 
counterfeit. And that's because he deals with the real thing all the time. If we're not in the word, we're not going to spot, spot a counterfeit. There's no way. You'll miss it every time. So settle. <clears throat> Speaking of which, you know the, the Bible Museum in, in uh, D.C.? The, they have some pieces of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, they've just discovered they're fake. They spent millions for them. No. And the thing is, <clears throat> there's such good forgeries. No one's, it's kind of created a huge wave in the scholarly realm because uh, the material is authentic. And they don't know how in the world they, they did it and who's doing it um, because they weren't the only ones who bought some <clears throat> for a few shekels. <laughs> so anyway, uh, knowing the real thing, it's very important. Uh, by the way, the buyer of those has been fired. <laughs> anyway, that's all another story. <clears throat> Subtle men condemned long ago, he tells us. When? When were they condemned? There's no right answer here. Scholars debate. When were they condemned? What do you think? Well, since God foreknows what they would do. Okay, you're going to argue, God, before the foundation of the world, they, were, they knew... Okay, that's one argument, yep. What else could be an argument given? When were they condemned? They were marked out for condemnation. He knew them beforehand, the Old Testament. The Old Testament, beforehand, Old Testament. Some argue it's a reference back to Second Peter, or perhaps even First Enoch, an intertestament Jewish writing that gives verbatim this idea that false teachers will be marked for condemnation, which is really interesting because they have strayed from the faith and are leading others astray. And you say, well, first Enoch, Jude cites first Enoch in his book. We will get there because one of the big questions is why is Jude considered in the canon and not first Enoch? And we will deal with that issue because it's very problematic. So we, we will address that. Um, I won't be there that week, but we will address it, right? No, we will, I promise, because it's a very important one. So there are subtle men, uh, they were condemned long ago. I, I wrote in your notes, and I'm citing Mu, and I'm in agreement with him. He says, Jude makes it his case by citing from the Old Testament, from Jewish traditions, and from the teaching of the apostles. It, it's been a transcending idea that they've been condemned. They fall within a camp that have gone astray. As a result, they will reap the consequences, the judgment of it. And why? He gives us three reasons. As I mentioned in your notes, ungodliness, the sexual immorality, which we'll deal with, and the denial of the Jesus lordship. So what we see in this description is, number one, under the condemnation, really, is that they are godless individuals. This is that they're, they're not atheist. When you hear that term in Scripture, they're not referring to someone who's an atheist. They're, there's a recognition there's a God. They just live as if there isn't one. That's a vastly different thing, isn't it? I mean, uh, the idea that you didn't believe in a God would be so foreign to the first century world. Um, not like today, um, but godless individuals is, speaks to one without religion or one who fails to worship. And I think that's the ideal we're do, dealing with here. It's the same idea used back in, in 2 Peter in reference to Noah's generation. 
they know there's a God, but they, they have nothing to, to do with it. Um, and Bauckham in his commentary says, the term is used of irreverence in an ethical sense, not a theoretical atheism, but a practical atheism or godliness. That's what we're dealing with here. They live as if there is none. And I don't know about you, we pick up the news, uh, newspaper or, or watch the news. There are a lot of people living as if there is no God. <laughs> they are the God. Uh, and that, that is the condemnation of these people. And remember, we're dealing with leaders in the church, these men who have slipped in. He also says they are immoral. And this term is usually used of sexual immorality is the idea here. And you, you can see it, can't you? This banner of grace is being waved. We are free in Christ so we can live like we want. Uh, and that's the danger even saying, well, once saved, always saved, in the sense that I can do whatever I want to do and live accordingly. That could have some problems. So we could deal with that another time. But we're, and, and how do we know he's dealing with immorality? I put several references four times He's going to condemn the false teachers in this little book for their sexual immorality, which is intriguing. And then finally, because uh, part of it's their behavior, but part of it's their rhetoric. And the rhetoric is they deny Jesus as sovereign Lord. This little section, by the way, should give any Jehovah Witness or a Mormon gas. You see what he says? They deny their only master and Lord. References used only of Yahweh, God the Father in Scripture, and he equates it with Jesus. It's very powerful. And he's equating them as one. God and the Father and the Son are one. And how are they denying this Jesus as master and Lord? I... I, I, I I don't think it's that they're denying his Jesus' deity per se, but it's more on how they're living that they will not submit to his authority. Uh, and I, I've put that in there. They profess to know God, but by their de deeds they deny him is what Paul says in Titus 1. Remember that? Yeah, they, they give lip service, but it, it's not there. Right? And I'm sure you've all engaged individuals who, who give lip service to Christ, but they don't live accordingly. And so you encourage, you admonish, and that's the idea here. These false teachers, they, they're subtle. <laughs> They've been condemned. They're godless, they're immoral, and they deny the Jesus. And they're in the camp. And Jude says, because of this, this is why I'm writing. I've changed the course of my direction of the epistle. And you need to take heed, those who are followers of Jesus Take heed in this. Questions on, on these two verses? You must have read my intersect. We'll get to there in a minute. Because I, Rick was asking about the holiness of God and how this fits into this equation. Let me get there because I think it's vital to this discussion. I think you're spot on. First of all, as followers of Christ, I mean, what do we do with this, right? As followers of Christ, we need to be excited about the truth. 
Every Christian must be a biblically educated theologian. I remember Ryrie always saying, everyone's a theologian. <laughs> and he's right. Some are more well-informed than others, but everyone is a theologian. Turn to 2 Timothy. Paul, as he passes on the baton, he's staring death in the face. He has a few things to say to little Timothy. In 2 Timothy 2, 14 and 15, he says, Remind people of these things and solemnly charge them before the Lord, not to wrangle over words. I think this is one of the most frustrating things when I read some of the post-modern, post-evangelical writings. They, they change the definitions. Does that not drive you nuts? It's like, no, this is what this term usually means, wrangling over words. This is of no benefit, he says. It's useless. It brings ruin or destruction on those who listen. Make every effort, watch this, to present yourselves before God, that's the second time he stated it, as a proven worker who does not need to be ashamed, teaching the message, watch this, of truth accurately. You can't teach it accurately if you don't know it. Right? Let me, let me finish because of time. But as followers of Christ, we need to be excited about the truth. And I, again, I'm preaching to the choir. But it's a reminder this morning as we look at Jude saying, listen, you need to be like this as an athlete. You know, we just had the Boston Marathon. You know, the training that goes into that is amazing. That's the kind of training we need for doctrine, for the gospel. And then secondly, he gives us, uh, and this is where we come into holiness. Our gospel cannot be divorced from the holiness of God. Down below is a book that I cite David Wells, No Place for Truth. It, it's, it was written a few years ago, but it is a great book. And if you love to read, I'd encourage you to pick it up. No Place for Truth. He says, divorced from the holiness of God, sin is merely self-defeating behavior or a breach in etiquette. Divorced from the holiness of God, our gospel becomes indistinguishable from any of a host of alternative self-help doctrines. Divorced from the holiness of God, our public morality, watch this, is reduced to little more than accumulation of trade-offs between competing private interest. Therein lies the problem, I would argue, with our false teachers. They have missed the holiness of God. They've replaced it for themselves. They've replaced it for cultural accommodation uh, and their passion for hedonism, power. You fill in the blank. That's where they are. And, and the danger is the gospel can be divorced from it very easily. Second Timothy, look at chapter 4. Let's go back to this little book. Because it's it, Second Peter, Second Timothy, and Jude resemble one another in many, many ways. 2 Timothy chapter 4, both written in the latter part of, the, I think, the church age in the first century and, and seeing what's transpiring. 2 Timothy 4, verses 2 through 5, preach the message, be ready whether it's convenient or not, reprove, reprove rebuke, exhort. And I realize he's addressing Timothy who's, who's going to be in charge of placing pastors, but to be honest, I'd argue that's, that this is a valid commendation for all of us in the room or yeah, for there will be time when people will not tolerate sound teaching. Instead, following their own desires, they will accumulate teachers for themselves because they have an insatiable curiosity to hear new things. Traditions from 
out the window, right? If you got a pastor who's all of a sudden has a new corner on some insight, run like the wind, <laughs> or at least do your homework. Be very careful. Or you pick up a book and this theologian all of a sudden has something that's just new and novel. Be careful. It says, that it says here that they will accumulate teachers for themselves because they have this desire and they will turn away from hearing the truth. But on the other hand, they will turn aside to myths. You, however, be self-controlled in all things. Endure hardship. Do an evangelist work. Fulfill your ministry. There it is, right? And so for us sitting in this room, many of you are involved in ministries. Others are heavily involved uh, leading your home. Uh, we need to be diligent about studying the word, teaching that, and holding fast, don't we? Comments? Questions? Yes, Dick? <laughs> Did you catch that? What must we think? Uh, it's imminent, you know. Um, the, the danger of any church is taking on its culture. And we are not exempt in the States. There's great things happening in the church, and there's also some dangerous things. So we, we need to be on guard. Yeah, Jerry. David, I haven't read him, so I, I'm just throwing this out. Would N.T. Wright fall into the category? Uh, N.T. Wright is one of the questions. Uh, we, could, <laughs> we could talk later. No, no, I, I, I want to be careful labeling. You know, and this is, uh, turn to the next page, uh, page four. This is, this is not what I was going to discuss. This is something for you to do on your own. But it, this is what churches and, and seminaries and even individuals wrestle with, and that is this. You got your core beliefs here, right? For some, and these are the non-negotiables, the virgin birth of Christ, the deity of Christ, right? the inspiration of Scripture. Those are your, your core beliefs. Those are the ones that you should say, I would die on this hill. You know? And for some, that core belief is a little bit larger than maybe what some of us would like. You know, they may throw in pre-trib. I'm a pre-tribulationist. For them, that's a non-negotiable. Um, I've listed what I see are, are the core beliefs that I would suspect everyone in this room, no matter what church you attend, we'd all be in agreement on. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I don't think so. Uh, we, would, we would all be uh, that the Lord's returning, exactly how that unfolds. We could debate in this room, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have what's called the secondary beliefs. This is matters of eschatology, etc. And so, and the Lord's even chiming in here. I hear music. Um, <clears throat> it's the trumpet. <laughs> I was right. It is pre-trib. <laughs> See y'all in seven years. <laughs> so you got the core beliefs. These are the non-negotiables. And, and that's one of the things to wrestle with in your own I'm not asking you to write a doctrinal statement this week, but thinking through what are the core beliefs, what are the secondary, and, and then the issue comes, well, when is one a heretic? 
right? And the questions such as N.T. Wright or you, you fill in the blank, right? Uh, is Hoffa that's a heretic? You, you can fill it in. When this is being attacked, we got a problem. And, and so that's, that's where you got to wrestle. And, and I even put this in your, in, on that page four. We, ha, we have to remember we walk in grace, all right, in love, in humility. Uh, anyone who says they know all things in Scripture um, need to either write a book or you need to run like the wind. Because <laughs> we're still learning. We're still searching the Scriptures. Even go back to Jude. Look at this. Don't miss this. It's an amazing statement. You know, here, he's plotted doctrine. He seems rather hard-nosed. And then Jude says, uh, verse 22, Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Have mercy on others coupled with the fear of God. Isn't that an amazing statement? He says, have mercy on them. Be careful. We walk in... Uh, grace and, and, and mercy towards one another. We don't compromise, though, these core beliefs. Those we cannot. Yeah. Gary. I was going to say, 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18, it talk, in this whole context, it's talking about future things. Mm-hmm. And then the last verse. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Mm-hmm. Grace is involved in this. There's going to be And you remember the blessing that Jude gives in verse 2 of this epistle? Go back, because this is key. We mentioned this. He says, may mercy, peace, and love. He does not mention grace, which you would expect in all the New Testament writings. Why? Because look what it says in verse 4. Certain men, they have turned the grace of our God into a license. So the problem is, yes, we walk in grace. (laughs) But the term is being abused in this group. And so there, there's a problem there. Grace, holiness, all of this surrounds this whole issue with doctrine. But the core belief system cannot be, right? Once we, we waver from that, then we fall trap of, of removing the traditions that have been passed down through Scripture. Yeah, once for all. Yeah. That's a good point. You know, when you're assessing, hey, are they a false teacher? It's not just their core beliefs, but it's their practices. What, what's, what's driving them? Yeah, good. Bill. Um, was John Galvin justified in endorsing the execution of his odorless body? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that we could debate. I'm going to punt. Uh, even he had regrets on that one. Well, let me close. I, I'm going to close. MacArthur makes this statement at the top of your page, the first page of your notes. Spiritual terrorists and saboteurs within the church pose a far more serious threat than manifesting host forces on the outside. From the very start of the church age, all the most spiritually deadly onslaughts against the gospel have come from people who pretended to be Christians 
not from atheists and agnostics from the outside. And that's so true. You just look at church history. They've subtly slept in, crept in, right? Well, I, I hope you're enjoying I'm loving the study of this book. And I, what I really love is we can just take a couple verses at a time and unpack this. We are meeting next week, so don't forget that. Then we are off for two. And I'll be sending out emails to remind you uh, I'll be in Israel again. I promise it's the last tour of the year. Um, but uh, we, will, we will be meeting next week, and we'll continue our journey through the, the epistle. Yeah, Rick. Uh, this being Holy Week, if we read one of Christ's last statements to uh, Pontius in 1837, the B part of that, his mission was that came into the world to testify to the truth. Yep. What is truth? Christ and the Word. And this week uh, is very much that, isn't it? As we, we celebrate the core of all of this, that is that Christ took on flesh, dwelt among us, was crucified, and rose again. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for your Word that gives us direction. I can't imagine where the state of the church would be if we didn't have these inspired texts in front of us that guide us, shape us, and inform us of the things that we need to know about you, about how we need to live for you. And Lord, in even knowing the end game, there's a day coming when the one who came 2,000 years ago is going to return as victorious king, not a little baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, with a robe dripped in blood as he vindicates his people and declares victory, final victory as the Davidic king. Lord, we thank you. We pray to that end. We thank you for our Savior, our risen Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.